now come to our reading, taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since... In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Back in 2016, my daughter and her husband gave me a Christmas present, uh, a book entitled Philosophers of Our Time, is edited by Tent Hondrick. And over quite some time now, this has been my bedtime reading. Some of the 18 essays in it have been interesting, others of them, frankly, I haven't really understood at all. The last article by a guy called David Chalmers asks why there's not been more progress in philosophy. Why is there virtually no consensus among philosophers about the answers to the really big questions of life? And he lists 30 such questions. And note that there are only four issues on which 70% or more of philosophers are agreed. The top three were this. Number one, non-sceptical realism about the external world. In plain language, that means that 82% of philosophers agree that the world is really there irrespective of whether people believe it is real or not. That's reassuring. (coughs) Three quarters of them agree on scientific realism. They accept that the scientific description of the universe is accurate and real. And coming at number three is atheism. 73% of philosophers agree that there is no God. Now, speaking as someone who does believe in God and has actually based their entire life on the premise that God is real, I have to say I find it a bit disconcerting that the majority of philosophers, who are clearly people of great intellectual ability, would disagree with me on that. It's an uncomfortable place in which to find yourself. 
After all, if what you believe is not held to be intellectual, intellectually credible, then you run the risk of other people thinking of you as just being a bit stupid or a bit of an idiot. And nobody likes that. Except that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul seems to make rather a virtue of this. The intellectuals of his day prized wisdom above everything else, and their verdict on his preaching was, it's rubbish. Then as now, people had their eyes set on achieving success. The capacity to do well, winning the admiration and respect of others in whatever sphere of life you found yourself. Politics, law, philosophy, business, your love life, managing your home. This is what people set their eyes on. But Paul did not tailor his message to other people's aspirations. He didn't offer them the key to achievement or success. While his Jewish listeners were looking for some demonstration of divine power, and the Greeks were looking for evidence of philosophical sophistication or rhetorical skill, Paul just told them the story of God's son being tortured to death on a cross. It was a message that was flimsy and worthless in the eyes of one group and just plain stupid in the eyes of the other. But Paul wouldn't budge or compromise or water down his message or or change it around to make it more palatable. He was adamant that even though the message we preach is one which the Jews can't accept and the Greeks think is intellectual suicide, we still persist in saying nothing other than the good news is Christ crucified. And why did he persist in that? Because the perception that the message of the cross is a waste of time is the mark of a world on the road to ruin. But for those who've heard or felt the call of God in their hearts, Christ is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the stupidity of God is far wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is far more powerful than human strength. So Paul sounds a noted defiance as he demands, show me where the wise man is. Bring out the scholar. Where is the philosopher of this age? What does it matter what the professionals think? God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. Because for all their great learning they haven't been able to discover the ultimate reality of God. And since in the wisdom of God, the world in all its wisdom didn't know God, God was pleased through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So Paul did not attempt to make his message more palatable to the up-and-coming elite, the yuppies of first century Corinth, because the message of the cross was for ordinary people. And he knew that those who'd set their hearts on achievement, success and status would have little time for it. And actually, they would be the losers. God didn't need their endorsement. God was not reliant on their support. And while God never stopped loving them, in no way was he dependent upon them. There is no danger that God will stop existing just because 83% of the world's philosophers don't believe that he's there. That news 
does not threaten God in the slightest. But it is an indictment of those who set great store by their own intellectual prowess. Paul would tell them that for all their great learning, they are completely missing the point. And the point is that there is no room for pride or boasting in one's own success or achievements in the presence of God, because in his light, our supposed brilliance simply fades into an insignificant glimmer. Paul says true wisdom is actually only found in Christ, with righteousness, holiness and redemption thrown in for free by the grace of God. You cannot encounter the reality of God without being humbled by his majesty and his holiness. And so a a meeting with God cannot be anything but life-changing because God is so much greater than we are. And in the presence of God, it's quite impossible, actually, to sit on the throne of your own life boasting about how important you are and the great things you've done. You just can't do it. As Paul Riley observes at the end of the chapter, if anyone's going to boast about anything, the only thing you can boast about is the Lord. In our minds, we can, of course, try and resort to meeting God on our own terms, but that entails bringing God down to our level, making up a version of God that we're comfortable with, a version of God who in some way is like me, is agreeable to me, a God who fits in with my nature. But that's a false God of our own making. If we want to encounter the reality of the living God, we can only meet him on his terms, at the time and place of his choosing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed, if it's God who says where he will be, then that will truly be a place that at first is not agreeable to me at all, that doesn't fit so well with me. Because that place is the cross of Christ. Paul preached the cross of Christ because it's there, and only there, uniquely and powerfully, that God meets us and makes himself known as our saviour. So meeting God is not the highest pinnacle of human achievement, reserved only for those who through great learning and religious discipline penetrate to the highest levels of spiritual enlightenment. God doesn't reserve knowledge of himself and salvation for the elite, because any degree of elitism elevates human pride and achievement, and that's not how it works. Writing to the Corinthians, Paul asks them to consider just how many of them were wise by human standards, how many of them held positions of power and influence, how many of them were of noble birth. The answer, not many. And why? Because he says God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. For all their learning, the philosophers and intellectuals would never know God the way the ordinary people in Corinth did who believed the message of Christ crucified. So Paul continues, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the powerful. He chose the things in the world that are lowly and despised. He chose nobodies to pull down the mighty from their thrones. And the cross does turn the values of this world upside down. Those things that are prized by the world, education, wealth, breeding, these things count for nothing in the presence of God. 
Because in his eyes, what makes your life count is not how much you've achieved, but whether you've known yourself to be called and loved and saved by God. That's grace. Ben Witherington put it this way, an adequate theology of grace undercuts any thought of earning salvation. Salvation in Christ is not a human self-help or self-improvement scheme, but a radical rescue from a form of slavery out of which one cannot buy one's own way. Grace is not only the great unifier, but also the great leveller in the Christian community. We are all on the same playing field. Some of us might be able to point to our achievements, great things we've done by virtue of our superior ability, special effort, or great courage, or amazing talent. Others of us have nothing in our lives that we could hold up for anybody else to admire. Still others of us, others of us will feel complete and utter failures. But whatever level we put ourselves at... God meets us all in exactly the same way, at exactly the same place. The cross of Jesus Christ. Why at the cross? Because it's only there that the Son of God became sin for us, to make us holy. And it's not about us climbing high enough to get somewhere close to God. It's about God coming down to the depths to meet with us and at that place turning our lives around. God defined himself as love on the cross of Jesus. The cross defines how we speak of God and how we meet God. And at the cross, when we meet God there, our lives are changed. The cross turns us around turns our priorities upside down, changes the direction of our lives, and nothing remains the same. Everything changes at the cross. God himself is changed by the cross. It's at the cross that the Son of God lays down his life to give us life. And we are changed by the cross because it's as we give up our lives that God begins to live his life in us. The cross is the only place where we can meet the living God. We may have heard God's promises. We may have thoughts about God and theories about the existence of God and what God might be like. But it's at the cross of Christ that God God meets us and changes us forever in the process. It's there that all our achievements count for nothing. It's there that all our sins and failures are brought to nothing. It's there that Christ empties himself to meet with us. And we are emptied of ourselves so that we can be filled with the fullness of his presence. Christ died for us that we might live. We die to ourselves that Christ might live in us. It's all deeply paradoxical and yet profoundly true. It is God's appointed meeting place. And there is no other place, no other way to find him as your saviour. It's where human wisdom, power and achievement, or the lack of them, come to an end. And where God meets us, calls us, accepts us, and welcomes us in his grace 
simply because he loves us for the people that we are. Our successes, our failures, count for nothing here. It's at the cross that God shows that you mean more than the world to him because he laid down his life for you. And where you discover that he means more than the world to you because in finding God you find yourself. Not the person you tried and failed to be or the person other people thought you ought to be but the person God created you to be. His beloved child. Nothing matters more than that. You might have spent a lifetime wondering about God. If you come to the cross you don't need to wonder anymore. You can simply pray a simple prayer that's on the screen. I'm going to say it. The words will stay on the screen for a minute or two. Well, not for a minute. Uh, Just for you to reflect on them. And if you want to, to make them your own. Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross you loved me and gave your life for me. I give my life to you. I leave my achievements behind Take away my sins and failures. Take me as I am. And help me from now on to live my life for you. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together number three.